So hello and welcome to the Cadre Journal. I'm Joseph and today I'm very excited to be talking to Inem from the Thomas Sankara Center for African Liberation and Unity. Uh, Inem, if you'd like to introduce yourself a little bit and then we can begin the discussion. Okay, thank you so much. Um, I think you've already um, started a bit of an introduction for me. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm a member and co-founder of the Thomas Sankara Center for African Liberation and Unity, which is based in um, Ouagadougou. Actually, the correct name, way of saying it is Ouagadougou, which is the capital of Burkina Faso, um, which is where I'm located. Um, and yeah, I'm also a member of the All African People's Revolutionary Party. Um, so that's my uh, sort of organizational uh, commitments. Awesome, and thank you so much for joining. And I'm really excited to discuss the work that the Thomas Sankara Center does. To begin, I'd like to ask how the center got started and where the, the vision for its work comes from. I know that a lot of the work is in the free lending library and as well the, the program for children. So I'd love to ask about kind of where the idea for it came from and how it's been implementing its work in Burkina Faso. Okay, so the project was initially started by myself with um, one of my comrades and uh, his name is Juan Lasida. And he um, is from here, like he grew up in Burkina Faso. I grew up in Northern California. Um, and yeah, so um, I'd say, so we met each other when we were both students in Senegal. And this was during a time when there was a lot of um, sort of uprising emerging across the region of the Sahel um, that kind of include the whole sort of sub-region. Um, a lot of the, the beginnings of like a very heightened form of um, anti-imperialist consciousness that we noticed. A lot of it was formed, um, like framed around struggling against the CFA franc currency, which is like a, this neo-colonial uh, French controlled currency, um, which allows France to, um, to exercise direct economic uh, control within many parts of Africa, West and Central Africa, various countries. Um, and so, you know, I, we were in Senegal, we were connecting, we were organizing um, with some of the groups out there. And um, I really was interested in the history of Burkina Faso because of Thomas Sankara and the revolution, uh, as well as the insurrection in 2014, I was really curious about kind of what direction the country's going and seeing sort of that there was this trend developing across the Sahel. I felt like, okay, I would love to see sort of what things look like on the ground in Burkina. Um, and so um, he went back and then I, I went also to Burkina Faso. This was around 2019. And we had the idea of starting a project um, a library type of project. There was, um, I, there was like we had. I had some access to some resources through the university that I was in at the time. Um, so that's kind of that's how it got started. But it was really not meant at the very beginning. It wasn't really conceived as what it is today. I think you know it's really grown into something that is becoming 
like a revolutionary Pan-African institution on the ground. And in the beginning, it was more of like, okay, we could maybe do some small thing with some students for like a couple months. But I think, you know, what it is, is just that um, there's just, it's really, um, this is like a time where there's just much more widespread, like mass consciousness around imperialism. We can say like the, the contradictions around imperialism are so uh, elevated here. And then so people are seeing, um, it's like seeing and understanding and grappling this, with these questions in ways that are, uh, I think, pretty clear in Burkina Faso right now. There's a lot of energy. So I really think it, it's just kind of a um, partially a product of the fact that the time is so so right and so correct that people are gravitating towards a space where they can come and, and, and develop politically and ideologically. So it became a much bigger project than it originally was. Um, uh, and it, I think it's just gonna keep growing and growing. Yeah, that's really amazing to hear and especially how it is connected to the, the consciousness of the people right now in Burkina. And I'd love to talk a little bit about that as well, about the the time period that you're beginning to do this work in when uh, from, you know, those of us looking at Burkina Faso from the outside, it is this incredible moment of resisting Consafrique, resisting the, uh, the imposition of the French military in West Africa. So I'd love to ask you a little bit more about how your work is correlating with that of the, the political movement of the Burkina Bay people, uh, whether it's the Ibrahim Traore administration resisting resisting France and, and pushing for multipolarity, or it's the the continued work by uh, Prime Minister is it Prime Minister Apollinaire Joaquin. Ah, I can't remember his last name. But yeah, yes, the, yes, yeah, exactly. So the yeah, just that continued incredible work that's being done to revive and I, I would want to ask as well how it's reviving the Sankaris legacy in Burkina as well. That's a really good question. Um and it's a very important question. So you know Burkina Faso it's an interesting country because you know sometimes people kind of like accidentally refer to Thomas Sankara as like the sort of founding father of the country like the independence leader because I think, you know, so many of the revolutionaries and the socialists and pan-Africanists across the continent um, were in power in the 60s. So a lot of times people think, okay, Thomas Sankara was around during that era and they don't realize it sure is later on in the 80s. But I do think that there's kind of also, even though people say this erroneously, I think there's an element of truth in it, which is you know, Thomas Sankara is actually the founding father of Burkina Faso. The state that existed here prior, Upper Volta, no longer exists. And so, you know, I think the question of like where Thomas Sankara comes into people's sort of consciousness and awareness, I mean, I would I, I would argue, and I think my opinion is kind of obvious when you hear, like the entire sort of foundation of the national identity, short-lived revolution, that four-year period is like the basis of what it means to be Burkina Bay. Even the term like Burkina Faso comes from that. Um, the country of, or I think in English we say like the land of upright men or the land of upright people in French, the, they use integrity, integre uh, instead of upright, which I really like that word integrity is a core part of the values here. But it's like every time somebody calls themselves Burkina Bay, um, they're not just, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's the country they're from and they're born in, but they're also declaring certain principles, um, like certain revolutionary values uh, that, that are also implied in, in what it means to, you know, call yourself a Burkina Bay rather than being voltaic 
uh, like something that it no longer exists. So I think that's very important to understand. I think it's also important to understand that Burkina Faso had a counter-revolution that lasted for almost three decades. It was 27 years. And so most of the people who are um, comrades organizing at the Tumas Sakara Center alongside me, the majority of them grew up, were brought up under the Kampare era. Um, we do have a comrade who was a child during the revolution under Sankara and um, was a young pioneer. And, and it's wonderful to have a former pioneer among us because we have our pioneer program. But most of the comrades, they grew up under Kampare. And so it's, it's a very interesting thing to be in a country where like it's like the masses of people have such a, a positive view of revolution. They understand, you know, revolution as something that's not only possible, but necessary. Um, and so that that's that's just like an incredible thing to you know be around people who have those feelings. At the same time, the aftermath of that um, nearly three decades of counter-revolution is also very much felt here. And so the biggest example I can give is that while there's mass consciousness around certain questions, such as where we want to position ourselves in terms of an increasingly multipolar world, I think that's very clear. Um, there are not necessarily other organizations, very many, I'll say very many other organizations um, that you can look at here that have any sort of political education process or ideological training component to them. And, and a lot of that is because of that 27-year uh, counter-revolution when the left was very much crushed. So what we have right now are mass mobilizations. Um, and these mo mass mobilizations um, are taking very clear progressive positions in terms of where our country should be headed, what partnerships we should have, um, how we feel about questions of African unity, uh, who our enemies are, these things are becoming increasingly clear. But the role of the Thomas Sankara Center is also to provide some uh, ideological training and some political education to accompany the mobilizations and also to um, promote more long-term permanent organizing. Um, not, you know, there are actually more and more uh, organizations that are co like coming up and forming. So we want to encourage political education within those structures. And then we want also people for the people who are mobilizing and protesting that, you know, as many are, uh, are possible are part of long-term organizations that are going to continue to struggle um, for the liberation of Burkina Faso, for the liberation of Africa. So that's kind of been what our role has been um, yeah, in terms of the political landscape here. And I, I want to ask on the question of political education, how you balance the fact of Thomas Sankara as both a, a revolutionary pan-Africanist, a revolutionary nationalist in respect to fighting for independence and sovereignty, but also as a, as a socialist as well, um, as kind of balancing these principles that, that all fit together, of course, and with that political education, what are the main ideas of Thomas Sankara that, that you would emphasize in that work to promote uh, when these movements are coming about to say the Sankara's legacy is about autocentric development and, and this is a way to sort of formulate um, all of these ideological tendencies together? That's a great question. So we define Pan-Africanism as the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. So we understand socialism, specifically scientific socialism, um, as part of the Pan-African objective. We understand it's also a way of 
understanding and analyzing the world, and that Thomas Sankara used uh, the, the, you know, the tool of scientific socialism as a way of, uh, of understanding the struggle, of um, like formulating his ideas and, and also carrying out various uh, campaigns. And so we see that as like, you know, as a tool for how we are going to liberate Burkina Faso and Africa. And I think this is a very important thing because um, I think very often here, Thomas Sankara is remembered for um, his like, um, what, what you were saying, I'm trying, my head is kind of thinking in French, but like, I think you said autocentric, at least that's what we'd say in French uh, development for his, um, anti-imperialist positions, his national uh, positions, nationalist positions. But sometimes it is forgotten here that, you know, he was a revolutionary socialist. And that's also, that's why um, like he was able to have this sort of analysis that he had. That's why the revolution was able to um, successfully build what it did build during that four-year period. Um, and I think, you know, that, aspect of things is sometimes left out. I think, you know, I, um, socialism is not something that you just do once or read about once. It's something that you really have to study deeply and, um, and, and it, it, it changes the way you see the world around you. So it's like, it's not just like a one-time sort of event or like a quick sort of like maybe like social media type of post. It's really something that you have to like take the time to break down and then gradually come to understand. And so we are trying to really make that connection clear and, and sort of sharpen our toolkit through like these, these tools that scientific socialism give us. Um, so we come and we do like study collectively as a group. And um, yeah, and then, then we're trying to like widen that and to, to really bring that onto, into the sort of political terrain here. That's really excellent to hear. And I, I want to actually, I'm glad you mentioned the study aspect because I wanted to ask more about the, the pedagogical work that the center is doing. I, I saw that the center runs an after-school Pan-African children's education program uh, for children ages seven to 12. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about why it's so critical to do that pedagogical work to help to develop consciousness, but also specifically aimed at, at young people to help shape their worldview with everything you just discussed about the, the necessity of study and the necessity of, of these ideas? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, so one time I, I, or I used to say, and it's a thing, I think it's something that's commonly said, I would say like children are the future. Then I had a comrade, um, Obig Bruno Jr. who corrected me, he said children are the present. And ever since then I've been saying that. And I think it's much more accurate. I think especially in a country like Burkina Faso, it's a it would be a serious error not to focus on children and young people. I mean, we talk about wanting to spread revolutionary pan-African values and a, a ideological training to the masses of our people. Actually, children are the masses, especially here, you know, especially here. I think the average age here is 17 and about 50% of the population are children. So children really are like the majority here. Um, it's a young population. And so 
it's not just something that like, yes, we know that the struggle is intergenerational. We know that it started with our ancestors and it will continue after us. But we also understand that um, right now, like in this moment, like this, they are the present, like this is their time, right? And so we, we do have a uh, focus on working with children and talking to children. And, you know, it's, I think it's, it's just like another product of um, being in a country that has this revolutionary history that's remembered so fondly is that we can be very direct with the children in terms of teaching them about revolution and talking about revolution and things like imperialism and capitalism. Uh, I think it's so funny. We started a, a pen pal program. So the children write letters to uh, like a Pan-African after school program based in France. And the first, the very first day they wrote their letters, like just to introduce themselves, it was just so funny. The children are like, hi, like my name is blah, blah, blah. My favorite color is blue. So what do you think about imperialism? Um, do you think that socialism is the right direction for Africa? Um, also, I like to play football after school and sometimes they play hide and seek. Nice to meet you. They sign their names. So I, I don't know. I just think it's so interesting the way children think about this and process this, but they're so aware. I mean, they pay attention to what the adults in their lives are talking about. They have, you know, the TV's on, they're watching it. And so they're seeing like the news reports and they'll come and they'll talk about different things happening in the country, different things happening on the continent and even around the world. So, um, so yeah, they're just, they're so brilliant, honestly. I mean, they're, they have me just so impressed sometimes, like the things that come out of their mouths. Um, you can tell that, they really care. And this is another thing is that they, they very much come on their own volition. You know, children have a lot of freedom here to come and go as they please. Um, the, the culture is very much like, you know, be back before supper type of thing. So the children have like a lot of freedom to, you know, if they want to go and play football with their friends after school, they can do it. But, but a lot of them, they choose to come here um, and they want to come here uh, every week. And even outside of the program, during the hours in the library is just open to the public. They wanna come here, they wanna sit down, they wanna read, they wanna to talk to us. So they're just really eager. I think, um, I just think it's important for them to have a space where um, adults or people in general are just talking to them like human beings and recognizing that, you know, they they have thoughts about what's going on and that they're taking it all in and that they're, you know, just, so I'm just treating them like the young revolutionaries that they are. So I think that really draws them into this space. Wow, it's really amazing to hear and to compare to the types of education that are promoted in, in the global north or in the imperial core with respect to really treating children like a, a kind of like unit for capitalist indoctrination or imperialist indoctrination versus that the more very much more liberatory motive of pedagogy but what you're saying about children being the the present of the revolution the continue the continuation of the burkina bay revolution but you know you were also mentioning at the same time four years of revolution versus 20 plus years of counter-revolution and I, I wanted to ask a little bit about how today that this the scales are beginning to tip back in favor of the revolution i wanted to ask about the the conviction of blaise campore for the murder of Thomas Sankara and and also this year in February the the burial that Thomas Sankara was finally given in Burkina Faso and how these things are beginning to signal a change in the reception of Sankara's legacy 
Um, of course, they have to do with the the current government as well and the the beginning of a, a delinking process from France, absolutely. But just how these things begin to change the consciousness after so many years of counter revolution that there can be more positive steps towards celebrating Thomas Sankara, you know, looking for accountability for those who were responsible and, and how you see that process continuing as uh, this current government continues its work. That's another good question. So, you know, first of all, just in the note about Blaise Compari. So Burkina Faso has had, had two coups last year. One of them is going in a very clearly anti-imperialist direction and is submissive to the calls on the ground, like from the grassroots level and following in that sort of direction that the people are calling for. The first coup did not go that way. And so the first coup, actually, that's when there was the trial of Blaise Compare, and he was immediately pardoned. And, and a lot of people believe that's why the second, like that was one of the big things that sort of raised the alarms and, and led to the second coup um, was, you know, okay, he um, he exposed himself too early on. He, he gave that pardon to Blaise Compare. And so, you know, there's all sorts of rumors I hear about where Blaise Compare is in the world. Sometimes I hear that he's in Cote d'Ivoire hanging out with Alassane Ouattara, who is a very pro-French politician in this region. Other times I hear that he's somewhere in the Gulf region, um, like on medical, doing some sort of medical treatment or something like that. But the point is he's not in prison. He's wandering around somewhere. Um, and so that nothing really came out of that. Um, but it is true that Sankara was reburied uh, earlier. And then this year, there's going to be a big uh, memorial service that's open to the public. And I think, you know, to answer your question about the counter-revolution and, and how Sankara's legacy is changing now and stuff like that, I say, you know, I've been to other African countries that have revolutionary, socialist, and pan-African histories where there is, like, significant opposition to this revolutionary history, They're, they, that they have, like, um, these right-wing forces that, you know, spewed this sort of rhetoric and try to tarnish the image of these revolutionaries. Burkina Faso is really not a country that has that. Rather, and it, it, it really hasn't ever, like even during the Blaise Compare era, it, you know, it was a lot harder to talk about Thomas Sankara, but it's, it was always, it's always been hard to denigrate his image or to speak negatively about him because he's been so he was so beloved. And I think some of it is because, you know, he accomplished so much in four years and then the way his life was taken. And then, you know, 27 years of, of forms of repression where again, Sankara wasn't really talked about negatively, but it was very hush-hush, you know? You, you, there's a, um, certain things you had to say, you know, more in secret. But even in Blitz Kampara, when he came to power, the way he sort of tried to spin things was that he's continuing the Sankara revolution. And, you know, I, I, he's not gonna say anything to do with it. Everybody knew, but you know, I'm this is the revolution continues. That's how it was framed. And so it wasn't framed as like something that was really denigrating what the revolution was so much as trying to co-opt it. And so that's always been the strategy. So rather than ever like kind of spitting on the Sankara legacy, it's always been about sort of co-opting it to sort of fit different narratives or spin the, the way it's shaped. And I think, you know, I think that that 27 year period, it really made people love Sankara more, you know, and, it, and so I think what we're seeing now is to me, it's just not, it's not a new thing. It's more that people are able to sort of express how they felt publicly for like, which they couldn't during a certain period of time. But it's like, 
it's, it's now open to sort of be able to say, okay, we want a, a, a leader that is like Sankara. And it's so clear, you know, what people look for in a leader is Thomas Sankara. Like sometimes, like I said, because it's co-opted and thrown around, anybody can get labeled Sankarist. Oh, this person's Sankarist, that person's Sankarist. So we need we need to have a clear understanding of what it means. Like what, what is Thomas Sankara's ideology? Like that needs to be really developed. But in terms of like, what do the people want? I mean, it is Thomas Sankara. It very much is. And it's, um, it's very hard to like be here and take a position against that because people remember. And it's just, um, and I think it's just the way that he was assassinated. That there's a, just a big feeling of like, okay, we have had something enormous that was taken away from us um, that we fought for, that we are willing to fight, continue to fight for, that we will bleed for. Like, this is the feeling um, over here. And on top of that, I, I want to ask, of course, uh, some of the footage that was coming out from the, the coup this year, just in terms of how it relates to the ongoing accountability for, for the murder of Sankara uh, with respect to France's involvement um, and the French government's involvement. During the, the coup process, there was a lot of discussion around the, the burning of the French embassy, for example, and just the, the, the sweltering of anti-French sentiment in Burkina Faso. So I wanna ask about what is the, the steps that are being taken to bring the French the the French neo-colonial structure to account for its role in the assassination as well. Okay, um, that's a good question. It's been this is like there's been an ongoing struggle to get France to release certain declassified documents regarding its involvement in the Sankara assassination. Um, as far as I know, the current um, government hasn't taken that up necessarily yet so far. It's been much more focused on getting France physically out of uh, the country in the different ways that it can and, and trying to sort of develop partnerships out of the NATO camp. But I think it's I think, you know, the, the more we go in that direction, the more that that question is going to continue to be raised. You know, I just, I think in Burkina Faso, just on the level of where the people are at, there's just not, like this question of whether or not France has done illegal covert things such as assassinating Sankara to destroy the revolution. Like these are hardly questions here because the people take this kind of thing for granted. I mean, to such an extent where it's like, a, it's um, the people here, there's a the widespread sort of um, acceptance that that France is supporting the terrorist organizations that they've come they've come to be fighting, which is something an accusation that Mali has uh, been waging a neighboring country also taking these anti-imperialist steps, um, been very vocal about. And so there's just no trust, and there's no reason to for there to be trust, of course. But like we have the the awareness now that there was never any, you know. You know, there's there's never been any sort of reason to have trust. There's no world in which you know the French government is going to be working in the interest of Burkina Faso. That's like um, it's contrary to their interests. You know, we these kinds of things are becoming just much more obvious to people here. Um, and then it's also kind of shifting. Like uh, there's a kind of a small shift now where it was very much focused on France, and I see it now shifting to have like an anti-NATO focus, which I think is so important. Realizing it's not just a question of France, but the United States is implicated in this, and other parts of the uh, European Union are implicated in this. And so we're developing 
uh, more and more awareness of, of who are our enemies, you know, can the interest of Africa and the interests of the, the uh, countries that have exploited Africa for the past several hundred years be the same? Sometimes people talk about we need new partnerships or we're developing new partnerships and Russia is going to be a true partner. Um, China, North Korea, Venezuela, these are true partners. These are like our new partnerships. And they always call people out and like, okay, but we can't say new partnerships because that implies that we had an old partner and that France is the partner. But France has never been a partner, you know? You have to decide, is it neocolonialism or is it a partnership gone wrong? And if we agree that it's neocolonialism, then there's no partner between, you know, the colonized and the colonizer. The master and the slave have never had a partnership. And so we try to also clarify that. But I think people are starting to really come to understand uh, what that relationship is and then the, and the heads of state. Um, also, seem to really understand what what it what it is you know what is the reality here? Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you mentioned the that aspect of of partnership and also of of Mali as well. And I wanted to ask about the the efforts towards even as we're seeing a sort of pan African integration that are developing out of the governments in Mali in Burkina Faso to some extent the government in Guinea. What do you make of of these approaches that? have been discussing some some possibility of a federation or uh, some growing integration between these governments. Yeah, you know, like I said earlier, so Pan-Africanism, we define it as the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. This question of unification is so crucial here. I mean, it's as big of a demand, if not bigger, though it's, you know, their relationship is dialectical. Anyways, between anti-imperialism and and unity. And this has been an ongoing struggle, I mean, for generations. This is not the first time that this particular part of, you know, piece of land in Africa has attempted to join the Federation. When it was Upper Volta, there was an attempt at something called the Mali Federation, which would have included Mali, Senegal, here, which is now, uh, now Burkina Faso and what is now Benin, but that didn't actually end up working out. There's been all sorts of attempts at federation throughout the region and the continent. There's the example of Ghana, Guinea, and Mali. Um, there's the history of East African Federation and um, the attempt to unify Tanzania, Uganda, and Kenya. So we, we have this whole history. I just, I think it's so important to understand, like we have seen socialism in Africa, we've seen um, revolution in Africa, but we've seen it happen in the past in isolation. And we see what happens when it can be taken down. I mean, Thomas Sankara, what he did was amazing, but it lasted four years and there was so little um, like defense. You know, we it was like Burkina Faso struggling in, in near isolation, just surrounded by these reactionary neo-colonial governments. Cote d'Ivoire played a big role in, in allying with France to help take Sankara down, you know this is a this is a real history, and so we understand we need Africa to be unified, and I think also just on a people to people level, maybe you've seen you know the way people traveled, uh, eight, what is it like 862 kilometers on foot from Bamako to come to Ouagadougou. There was another delegation that traveled even further because they were leaving near the Mali Mauritania border um, to support their their to express their support for the federation. I think we have to understand that like. On a people-to-people -people level, this is like this really means everything to people. Um, the eastern part of Burkina Faso. Let me make sure I'm getting my compass right. Sorry, the western part of Burkina Faso um, was historically integrated into 
the Mali Empire. And so the language that they speak there is the same language that is spoken in Mali. It's also spoken in parts of Guinea, parts of Senegal, etc. The ethnic majority here in Ouagadougou is, or Ouagadougou is the, the Mose people. They come from the north of Ghana. Um, you know, pretty much every ethnic group that, that exists here in Burkina Faso uh, either originates from a different like someplace outside of the borders or has um, like people of that ethnic group outside of the borders. And so I think there's this big feeling, you know, the borders being illegitimate, never historically determined by Africans. Um, the borders are pretty fluid. If you go to those regions, people are always crossing back and forth, but it's hard when there are these legal barriers. And so it's like families that are separated into these different, like, you know, pieces and areas. And so these are this is a, just a really, really big question in terms of like, when are Africans going to be able to determine what our states look like and, and define our own nations? And, and the, for us, this is a question of a totally unified Africa that can defend itself. We even talk about how like NATO exists as this uh, like pan-European force with this mentality that's like touch one touch all or if we attack one of us attacks you we all come together to attack you but african states fight in isolation i mean boko haram has been operating in nigeria for how long now it's um i don't know if it's been two decades yet but maybe it's coming up on, on that it's been it's been a, a long time that boko haram has been there now we have mali and burkina who are fighting different terrorist groups and organizations, these, these groups all move around the, the region. So when, when one country attacks them, they'll move to the, the next country nearby, but their countries are fighting in isolation. And so there's not some sort of pan-African military force that's gonna show up and defend Somalia, which is being drone bombed by the United States for how long, or defend Nigeria, or defend Libya, which is like, you know, we saw what happened when NATO attacked Libya. That's, that's why we have this chaos in the Sahel to begin with. And so we are just all fighting in our own little corners. And there's not necessarily this idea that, oh, if something's happening in one corner and it's happening in the Sahel, then the Horn of Africa is also responsible. Or Botswana needs to come and step up. Or Zimbabwe or Algeria, et cetera. But you know, we need to sort of develop in that sort of direction because the enemies that we're fighting have already reached that sort of point. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And especially when you discuss the sort of European, pan-European mentality of a, a NATO organization, very clearly seen in, in Libya with just this many-pronged assault um, by different European actors in NATO. And I, I'm curious, you mentioned with neo-colonial actors, just the role that, that the ECOWAS and the other you know, regional institutions in West Africa have been playing, which definitely have been playing uh, a reactionary role uh, in continuing in West Africa through this kind of neo-colonial structure. So why is it that more of the regional organizations that are developed throughout Africa tend to serve neo-colonial interests, you know, like you mentioned the CFA Frank, for example, that these communities where they are, are imposed are more often neo-colonial structures than they are actually positive unions or federations. This is a really good, oh, I keep saying this is a good question, but they're all great questions. Um, you know, I think we need to look back at the history also of the African Union, which was 
at one point the Organization of African Unity. And we need to remember that the Organization of African Unity, which is now the African Union, was a compromise. And it was one that was not in favor of the progressive and revolutionary forces of its day. So when we look at post-independent or flag-independent Africa, uh, we, we, we can remember that there were two different camps that sort of, uh, that had two different positions vis-a-vis this question of African unity and anti-imperialism. So we had the Casablanca group and we had the Monrovia group. The Casablanca group had uh, progressives and revolutionaries among it, like Nkrumah, like Sekouture, like Modibo Keita, uh, like Nasser, et cetera, who believed that Africa should move to a total like a totally unified federal state. That was the end goal. And they were also very clear that we should not make, comp- like we should not put ourselves in positions of dependence on our former colonial powers or former colonizers. The Monrovia group did not have those positions. They wanted Africa to remain fragmented and they wanted um, certain types of uh, like economic relationships with their former colonizers, such as the CFA Frank, which is one example. Um, you know, in the, the Francophone countries, this history of the CFA Franc, I think it's so important to remember, uh, these people who, who supported this sort of um, attachment towards France were politicians that were handpicked and installed by France directly to govern, not necessarily leaders that came about through struggle. There are places where there was struggle on the ground. There was there were places where there were there was warfare on the ground. Cameroon is a great example where um, independ- pro independence, anti imperialist, and socialist forces tried to fight the French through guerrilla warfare, but they didn't succeed. They were crushed, and so France rushed to put independence in the hands of the person or the groups that they felt would best serve and prolong French interests. Uh, and so that France had that sort of strategy of, you know, placing, acting, being very proactive in, in placing the leaders they want with, uh, at the head of these states before sort of the anti-colonial forces won. Uh, another great example is Senegal, because Leopold Sédar Senghor was uh, a politician in France. Uh, he was in the French parliament, so he was literally like a French sort of politician who France decided, okay, he could be a head of state here. And uh, they had this whole school, um, I forget exactly what it's called, like, I want to say Elysee d'Autremer or something, some overseas like training school um, where Leopold Sedas and Gore was like a dean there. And then there's like all these other African politicians that were trained there. And the whole point was to train this upcoming generation to serve, you know, French interests and and promote the sort of governance that France wanted. And so there's this long history of of this sort of, okay, I guess long story short, what I'm saying is the African Union itself, and then this sort of model in terms of those kinds of uh, formations where we're gonna have like some sort of trade agreements or like, I don't know, nowadays we talk about different free trade zones, et cetera, but in this, still like fragmented Africa, which is still open to have these sort of neo-colonial alliances. You know, a lot of it traces to this compromise where instead of following in the more Nkrumahist uh, vision of unifying Africa and not accepting any of these uh, accords with the former colonizers, uh, it, was, it was decided that, okay, we can, we can have more of a vague type of unity where we'll all sit down together occasionally 
Um, but we can still have our close relationships with the colonizers. And so I, that's really the origin. So these, these sorts of structures were never designed to ever lead with time towards true Pan-Africanism. Um, they've always actually been a roadblock because you know, the people wanted a unified Africa. Um, but you can't say when it's, it's something where, you know, you can't really have a leader here that's going to um, pick up a microphone and say, we're, we're never going to unify Africa. We're against it. I mean, the, the people would never accept it. But you can you can use these sort of other sort of structures to prolong um, that that struggle and to go more slowly in towards that direction of unity. Yeah, I, thank you so much for that, that answer and providing kind of the broader historical context. And just to conclude the, the interview, kind of looking back and then looking forward a little bit, I'd, I'd want to ask from your, your vantage point in Burkina Faso and through your work in the, in the Thomas Sankara Center, what do you think is the future of the Burkina Bay Revolution, the, the state that it's in now, with, of course, these consistent attacks by France, but also a lot of positive steps towards towards the linking, towards development, and how the legacy of Sankara in the next five years, 10 years, will play a role in the, the continuation of this revolution, uh, in the continuation of this, these positive steps towards Pan-Africanism and socialism. Um, okay. Um, I think that there are certain things that have not been addressed yet that, that will have to be. I think the CFF Frank is a big question. Um, and I think in the long run, it's actually, it, I think it's going to be impossible to delink from France militarily without addressing this question of the CFA franc. And so I think economic sovereignty is going to be the next sort of step towards total sovereignty already as Burkina Faso is trying to establish certain relationships with, with um, countries that are not uh, NATO allies, countries like Russia, there's already like ways that France is able to use the CFA to um, block certain deals and exercise certain um, certain powers uh, to prevent some of this. And so I think this question of the currency is really the next question that's going to be addressed. Um, I think you know you know so if Mali and Burkina and then possibly. Guinea, I mean, we're waiting to see sort of what position Guinea is going to take. But I think that if there starts to be a, um, a federation forming in this region, it's going to have a massive impact on the, first of all, on the Sahela as a whole, um, and then in, on West Africa. And then we can even say like going to the level of the continent uh, if people are seeing this happening. So already there's a lot of buzz and stirring in Niger. Um, a lot of what France has done is leave Mali and replace, relocate their operations in Niger. Niger has the biggest U.S. military base um, in West Africa, the second biggest in, in, in Africa, um, outside of the Horn, outside of Djibouti. Um, and so there is this anti-imperialist, there's like this, this, this sort of anti-imperialist sentiment exists there. And I think it's going to be hard to contain um, especially if, if Mali and Burkina are moving in this direction. And then I think that's going to just have a big impact on other countries um, around as well. So I think this has the potential to change the horizon of your just like the whole atmosphere of organizing in the region. Now, 
I think a lot of it really just de also depends on like if the Federation forms and it's happening. It, it has been a while since there's been updates, but they're, they're also, most states are also very focused on the security crisis right now. Um, I think it's hard to make a promise about a sort of Federation that people have pushed for so much and not follow up with it. So I think it's still, I'm going to just say, I think it still rests to be determined, you know, what the future of it will be or what it will look like, how it will develop and when. Um, but I think the fact that that's on the table has a lot of potential to really change, um, yeah, to really just change sort of like the whole region. Um, I think also if Mali and Burkina have their own sovereign currency, it's going to um, revitalize the struggle against the currency in various parts of the of at least West Africa, various parts of West Africa, even in places that are not so much um, part of the like struggle against the French military, like places like Benin, which border which borders Burkina and also has the currency. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's still a lot of struggle that needs to be happening. You know, it's a class struggle. The struggle that sometimes framed is, you know, we're struggling against this leadership, or our leaders are bad, et cetera. We understand it's a it's a class struggle, and this is a we have a neo-colonial class that's in power here. Um, and so there's places where it's going to be a lot harder, like Togo, for example, Cote d'Ivoire, for example. But I think just you know, if Mali and Burkina go in a certain direction, it's going to just it's going to be very hard. And, you know, other leaders already are feeling very threatened. You know, they're, they, and this is why ECOWAS is moving the way it is. It's a big threat um, just to, because, you know, once the people see what the potential is, it's, it's just going to be very hard for them to be uh, complacent and, or pacified. Absolutely. And it'll be really interesting to see. And, and I think the work that you're doing will help definitely as part of that revolution uh, as it continues in the next in the next few years. As part of that, I wanted to conclude by asking how listeners can support the Thomas Sankara Center, what ways financially, uh, through the work that you're doing, through education as well, um, and just other projects and work that the center is doing right now that people can check out. Okay, cool. So first I would say um, you can check out our Instagram, which is Burkina Books. That's the handle. And then our Facebook is in French. So you have to type Centre Thomas Sankara pour la libération et l'unité africaine. Um, but I think if you just maybe type Centre Thomas Sankara, hopefully you can find a Facebook page through that. Um, you know, I mentioned that when we first got started, I was a university student and I was able to get a little bit of funding to start a project, but I'll say right now and for the past, I don't know, over a year now, or like we've been around for two years, for actually like one and a half years, um, pretty much like 90% of the time or like, yeah, we have been just grassroots funded. So we... All of our money is just people supporting us um, who are like, we try to communicate a lot via social media. Um, so it's, we're entirely right now, like entirely donation based. So we have our Patreon, um, which is the Burkina Books, if you search on Patreon. Um, we have a GoFundMe. So if you um, click on our Instagram 
or you look on our, up our Instagram, you can find the link in our bio for our GoFundMe. And then our cash app is Burkina Books as well. Um, and those are really, it's really through just people who want to be in solidarity with us that we're able to continue this project and this work. And yeah, it just, it goes a really long way out here. Um, I think just like a little bit of, uh, a little bit out there goes really a long way out here. And so it really enables us to have a vibrant young pioneer program for children. It allows us to have lots of community events, um, to support the, the lending library, to increase our uh, the books that we have here, most of which are not available at all in Burkina Faso outside of this space. So yeah, it really, um, that support really helps us a lot. Fantastic. And I really hope that people listening will support on the Patreon and check out on social media, Burkina Books. Thank you so much, Inem. It's a pleasure speaking to you and solidarity with the work that you're doing in Burkina Faso. It's really amazing. Um, have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. Oh, <laughs>